Night Dreams Talk Radio, After Dark, wants to give a big shout out to all the truckers that listen to our show. These are uncertain times. Pandemics breaking out, a world on the brink of war, economic collapses, natural disasters, and crime around every corner. That's why six-time naked and afraid legend, extreme survivalist, adventurer, and Army combat vet E.J. Snyder, the number one ranked survivalist in the world, wants you to be ready and has everything you need at www.ejsnyder.com. All of your needs to be ready for the bad days ahead. From survival training, gear, survival food, videos, and more. That's right. Subscribe with your email at www.ejsnyder.com for blogs, newsletters, and updates so that you are prepared and ready for whatever comes your way. E.J. Snyder always has your back. Survive on ejsnyder.com. Are you an independent-minded thinker who likes to weigh the evidence, pro and con, to make up your own mind? If so, then the book Alien in the Mirror by Randall Fitzgerald is the right book for you. Alien in the Mirror brings refreshing clarity and sanity to topics long shrouded in smoke and mirror confusion. With a foreword by the legendary scientist Jacques Vallée, it is the most authoritative and complete guide yet published to all of the theories and evidence about the UFO phenomenon. Ancient astronauts and abductees from both believers and skeptics. Get your copy and read Alien in the Mirror by Randall Fitzgerald at Amazon.com or by visiting www.alieninthemirror.com. Mystic Inc. Publishing is an independent publisher of award-winning books featuring spiritual, shamanic, consciousness-expanding works of a visionary, metaphysical, and transcendent nature, including dramatic works of fantastic fiction in the paranormal genres of magical realism, horror, supernatural thrillers, and science fiction including short stories, spiritual memoirs, historical fiction, and many other non-fiction titles. Mystic Inc.'s titles are available in ebook, print, and audio formats and can be found at Amazon.com with special deals available on the Mystic Inc. website at mysticincpublishing.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-C-I-N-K Publishing. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Night Dreams brings on the night worldwide. Did you know you can find us on your favorite app? And now you can watch us live on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to our channel and give us a thumbs up. And now, here's Gary. And here I am. Boy, I still am sick with the virus, but I am feeling a lot better. And for some people looking at my hair color, no, the virus changed my hair color. I didn't take any of that 
of my wife's or daughter hair stuff and change my hair color. That that didn't happen. It just happened on its own. I woke up and it went from gray to dark brown all by itself. Well, in the news, you think the mafia, the mob out of Las Vegas, you know, for years they were talking about they would take these people and bury them out in the desert. Well, now it's they're finding bones everywhere in Lake Mead. They just keep coming up in barrels, out of barrels, everywhere. And, you know, the mob never thought and nobody ever thought that Lake Mead would dry up. It was a huge, huge man-made lake. And I'm just wondering, James, how many of these mob hits are going to keep surfacing in Lake Mead? I guess only time will tell, but I can tell you, uh, hey, I watched that movie Casino, and they said the same thing. Many holes out here. Well, there is a lot. And it's scary. You know, I mean, you think about it. I mean, at this point, they found another set of remains today. They found another barrel yesterday. Then they have found that other barrel. And then yesterday, they found some more remains. So, I mean, you know, the mob, I, I guess it was easier just to throw people in a barrel and throw them in Lake Mead than going out to the desert, you know, and, and burying people out there. You know, a lot of times when I'd be out there going from Tacoma, Gig Harbor to Las Vegas, we go through all those deserts, especially around Reno and Las Vegas, and you couldn't help but wonder how many people were buried in those deserts. Very interesting, very scary, and, uh, well, I hope they don't keep finding them. as scary on that. Well, scientists are saying, well, hobbits might be among us, and they could be real. You know, we talk about fairies and little people, but now they're saying that maybe they actually do exist. Now, I'm not talking about my Aunt Bertha that could have been a, a fairy, but, you know, I'm talking about they have actually come to the conclusion that they might really exist. What do you feel, James? Well, I definitely think they could because, after all, it wasn't too long ago they found the um, skeletal remains of a whole clan of uh, pretty much Hobbit-type people, small people. Uh, now, I don't know if they're the same size as what you're talking about, but um, that was on that one Indonesian island. But, yeah, I think definitely could be something out there. There's been reports throughout the last few years of, you know, sightings of these little people. Oh, yeah. And then also scientists, climate scientists are now really changing their story. You know, uh, I remember going back years, you know, uh, our former vice president was telling everybody, you know, we're going to go into these earth changes, climate changes, and people ridiculed Al Gore. Yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. You just try to scare the population. Well, everything he's preached 20 years ago is now happening. And my friend Art Bell and Whitley wrote that book, The Coming Superstorm. And it's all starting to come. Maybe they were off by a few years, but it is getting really scary. Now they're saying by 2026, there's a 50, 50 chance that the temperatures, the least temporary, will be where people can't even survive in a lot of places in this planet of ours. Oh, yeah, it is scary. Yeah, that movie, The Day After Tomorrow, that was a scary movie, especially when things froze and people froze standing up. 
So, yeah, it's scary events. And, you know, it's funny. Gary, we've had scientists on both sides of the fence of that issue. And same same scenario. Some make fun of them and some stand by what they say. But, listen, there's definitely something going on because I am telling you it snowed here April 19th. Uh, in the Midwest. So what's that tell you? Well, again, you know, there is a time traveler who says by 2029, you know, the desert in Las Vegas is going to be covered with snow. So maybe he, maybe there is a time traveler. I don't know. Well, science discovered a unexplained rare nuclear fusion fuel. You know, we figured we'd have to go to the moon for helium-3, but now... They have found a big supply of helium-3 right here on our planet. Whoa, that ought to be interesting. Helium-3, they've been talking about that for years, mining on the moon. But now if we can get it here, wouldn't that cut the cost and change things as we know it? Well, you know, with the whole point of helium-3, it would change everything that we, well, we don't have it naturally on our planet. And have a big abundance of it on our planet, well, then we don't have to go to the moon to mine to get it. I don't know. You know, another thing, a black hole, a major black hole, flipped its magnetic field here the other day. And uh, science is studying it. What could happen with Earth if it flipped its magnetic field? I mean, a lot of things are going on. A lot. Oh, yes. You know what? You bring up that black hole. We're going to have a specialist on that down in the future. But those things are scary. And, yes, we've been talking about the flip of our world for last year or longer. So, yeah, who knows? Oh, yeah. Well, tonight we're going to talk about disclosure. We're going to talk about real disclosure. It happened back in 1947, Roswell. And we're going to talk about a lot of different things, what's going on in ufology. And why is there a big, well, division among ufologists right now? It's gotten really crazy. We're going to be back with Don right after this, so stay tuned. You're listening to Night Dreams Talk Radio. From Ray McGinnis, Unanswered Questions. Unanswered questions, what the September 11th families asked and the 9-11 Commission ignored. Unanswered questions is a new book by Ray McInnes. Ray has appeared on Night Dreams with Gary to discuss his new book, Unanswered Questions. An absolutely riveting read, Unanswered Questions is a chronicle of the efforts of the September 11th families to force a reluctant Bush administration to investigate the attacks. The questions they asked the 9-11 Commission that they ignored and why it all still matters. Just like the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and Martin Luther King, the destruction of the World Trade Center is another cover-up. Unanswered Questions by Ray McGinnis is now available at local bookstores, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble's website. Pick it up today. Hi, this is Val Von Torn of Metatron Power & Light. You're listening to Gary Anderson and Night Dreams Talk Radio. Don Schmidt is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. He was a special investigator for Hynek before that. 
A seven-time best-selling author, his first book, UFO Crash at Roswell, was made into the Golden Globe-nominated movie Roswell. And his book, Witness to Roswell, was the number one UFO book in the world for two straight years. He's also the co-founder of the globally famous International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell. Well, Don, welcome back to the show. Boy, I can't believe it's been 13 months since we had you on. And for many of us, it's gone by rather quickly. And only because, whether out of illness or you know, treating family members who have uh, been you know, suffering as far as uh, just the whole, the entire aging process. Like, I, I often comment that... Um, the older I get, the more I lose. So uh, here it is, only May, and I've already been to 10 funerals. I so, don't know your age, but, Don, I am 70. In January, I hit 70. And I tell you, you know, I lost two sons recently, a month apart, exactly 30 days apart. Oh, my condolences, Gary. I had no idea. You lost two sons? Yeah, one on uh, June 7th of 2020, and then July of the this, this same year, I lost my second son. And I tell you, it's hard. And then I lost a lot of friends in broadcasting that i known for years, you know. And, and a couple of them swore up and down this whole COVID thing was a hoax. And guess what? They died of COVID. Right, right. And I've had the same situation here. But uh, no parent ever thinks they will outlive their children. And I, I saw that uh, many times with uh, many of the Roswell witnesses that as they got older and then to be introduced and to discover that they had lost sons and daughters to polio and smallpox and accidents and that type of thing. And uh, that's why I, I found very often that I, be, I, came, I became very close to these people. And I would be told that in some respects I would become the sons that they lost because uh, I cared about these people, not only because they were being forthright and honest with me as an investigative you know, researcher, author, but because I, I, I find that, you know, especially the, the, great, the greatest generation, the World War II generation, as we've dubbed them, as we, we call them, that uh, for everything that they've been through, the Great Depression, World War II, the Korean War, up to the, the Vietnam War, and then to lose your children besides. So that's one of the reasons that I'm not one who can stand back and say, well, I, I, I think you're lying. I think you, you're, you're fabricating this. What else do you need in your life? I mean, that you would claim that you were also part of your recovery of a genuine flying saucer back in 1947. And on top of it, they were in charge of the atomic bomb back at that time. So it, it just creates a, a, a whole different feel for the witness, so to speak. It and does, so that's Don. why I, 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 I sympathize with you, Gary, so my condolences. Yeah, well, thank you. But, you know, even like Roswell, if you want disclosure, it happened in 1947. You know, Don, yes. I've had so many guests on the show, and they say, well, you know what? That was in 1947. That doesn't count. Well, gee, Jesus Christ walked the earth, too. Does that count or not count? I mean, come Good on. Point. We had something happen in 1947. Why would they announce that they had wreckage of UFO 
Then, like, four hours later, they changed their whole story. I know why they changed their whole story. They didn't have permission to hit the AP wire press and all this stuff with the story about the crash UFO. People, you know, having accidents in their pants in the Pentagon. The president probably yelling at the top of his voice, why is that being released? And, you know, they changed their story. Well, Gary, that's a, a common misperception that this was just a knee-jerk reaction on the part of the, the officers at Roswell. Again, the very people, the first atomic bomb squadron in the world, the 509th Bomb Wing. And then Colonel William Blanchard, the base commander, when the crash, the debris, first came to their attention, early Sunday afternoon on July 6th, and after Colonel Blanchard dispatched not a couple of enlisted men, but two of his lead intelligence officers, one being, as most people recognize the name, Major Jesse Marcel, and the other being Captain Sheridan Cabot, who was with counterintelligence, already demonstrating that, uh, like everyone else, prior to... Uh, the uh, discovery of the debris. No one could identify this wreckage. And so uh, counterintelligence clearly suggesting the need to determine whether this was a foreign design, foreign manufacture. So the, the level of importance continues to rise. And, and Colonel Blanchard, who does he call, who does he contact? Well, he contacts his commanding officer, who happens to be Brigadier General Roger Ramey of the 8th Air Force, which oversees the 509 bomb wing. Now, it's the 4th of July weekend. Ramey is headquartered at Fort Worth, Carswell Army Airfield, and he's not available. He's in Denton, Texas with family and for the dedication of a new plane. So Blanchard, from Roswell, speaks with Ramey's chief of staff, Colonel Thomas DeBose. Well, DeBose then immediately contacts the Pentagon. Well, how do we know that? Well, we interviewed DeBose personally on numerous occasions before he died in Orlando, Florida. He signed a sworn affidavit where he described the following. He contacts the Pentagon. Again, holiday weekend. Within an hour, they get back to him. And it's General Clements McMullen, who is Deputy Commander of Strategic Air Command. And he orders DeBose to have the wreckage from Roswell immediately sent to Washington. And it transits through Fort Worth. And there, the base commander at Fort Worth, Colonel Alan Clark, gets on a plane, and he's got a canvas-baked satchel full of the wreckage, the actual, the genuine wreckage that was out at the crash site. So Washington, D.C. already has wreckage in hand by late Sunday evening, July 6th. Now, when does the press release go out? At noon, Mountain Time, Tuesday July 8th, a day and a half later. Now, when the press release hit the wires, we have the original Christian uh, Christian Science Monitor 
bullet releases that came out on Associated Press, AP. And the minute-by-minute minute bullets, bulletins that come out, Washington is originally exchanging the flying saucer announcement. They're not discounting it. They're not, you know, refuting it at all. And what's so interesting, Gary, is that over the, the course of the next four to five hours, you see over the wires the evolution of this, this announcement from the first claim of it being a flying saucer into the weather balloon device. <laughs> so it was staged. It was the creation of a straw man. They first built it up, and then they tore it down. And the main reason they had to do that, Gary, was that when the rancher, the ranch foreman, W.W. Brazel, who first discovered all that wreckage, when he came into town, he didn't go, when I say town, I meant Roswell. When he came into Roswell, he didn't go to the military. He went to the sheriff. He went to the sheriff's office. And who should he speak with there, aside from the sheriff and a number of the deputies, but a reporter by the name of Frank Joyce from radio station KGFL in Roswell. And Brazo spilled his guts, told him everything. So the dilemma that the military faced was that the press knew about this before they did. And so they just couldn't discount, they couldn't just deny something crashed, something happened. So they took a, it was a high gamble risk because you had what Brazel was originally claiming, what the sheriff, what they claimed that they held in their hands, this highly extraordinary, this strange wreckage. So they had to create a situation where this is what it looked like, but this is what it actually was. And so, as I described, that evolution from the flying saucer into the weather balloon with a radar reflector kite, and it worked. They got away with it. Oh, they, they took did. a high chance, but it, they got away with it. And I think one of the main reasons they did, Gary, was this is just coming off of World War II, and the military at that time walked on water. Whatever they announced, whatever they stated as being factual, the press and the public readily accept it without reservation. Oh yeah. So so today would never happen. But well, that, you know, yeah, but you, Don, just think we came from World War II, mm-hmm. and, and you know that everybody thought highly of the military. Look how many people served. How many people did we lose? What did we accomplish during World War II? And, and you know everybody, you know, put the military. On a pedestal at that point. Precisely. They were heroes at that time. Precisely. Yeah. And what was what was also ironic in all this, Gary, was that prior to the Roswell incident, the personnel at the Roswell Army, uh, Army Airfield, there was a wonderful relationship between the Roswell civilians, the townspeople, and the base. They, there was a camaraderie, there was a, uh, a mutual respect. They were like, like a family in many regards. And we would have them describe how the military would do a 4th of July parade down Main Street, and with all the children just cheering and waving the American flags, it was you know the best of all worlds. And then to hear all these people, all these witnesses, either 
whether civilian or military, described that immediately after the weather balloon explanation, contrary to what the townspeople, the the, uh, the high-ranking uh, city officials in Roswell knew to be the truth, that the level of distrust and disdain totally overcame that that family atmosphere, that they didn't associate with one another any longer, they didn't trust one another, they were they were looking over their shoulders and wondering if they were going to be arrested for or saying killed. the wrong thing, speaking out of turn, and the threats, as you, you're aware of, Gary, that the military then also threatened many of the civilians for nothing more than just performing their civic duty in reporting what they were witness to, what they had held in their hands, use that term once again. Now, hey, so, John. That's the psychological you know, aspect in all this as well. Oh, yeah. Now, we need to take a break. This is about three minutes long. You know, I will say this before the break. I have interviewed so many people who wrote books on Roswell. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not mentioning names, but I'll tell you, a lot of the people are, are either imagining what happened at Roswell. I mean, it, it, it's really pathetic. Uh, some of these books it has come out. Uh, one person I interviewed claimed that one of their people who actually saw the aliens were propped up standing in the corner of the hangar. And that's not anything that would happen. So when we come back, let's cover all this stuff because, you know, again, in ufology, I'm going to say it, I'm going to make enemies, but there's a lot of people writing books out there, a lot, and a lot of the stuff is garbage. They, They make the stuff up. And that's what I like about what you have done. I, 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 what you've done really brings pretty much what really happened. We'll be back with Don right after this break. You're listening to Night Dreams Talk Radio. Check out our website at www.nightdreamstalkradio.com, and we'll be right back. Meet the Totally Ninja Raccoons. Three raccoons who become ninjas because they already have the masks. The Totally Ninja Raccoons books are short adventures with quick chapters specially structured to encourage reluctant readers. Each book has the Totally Ninja Raccoons encountering a cryptid. The monsters are presented in a fun, not-so-scary way. I said not so scary. (sighs) Readers are encouraged to do their own research and make up their own minds about the possible existence of Bigfoot, the Jersey Devil, aliens, and more. The Totally Ninja Raccoons are available on Amazon or at your favorite bookstore. You can buy autographed copies direct from the author at kevincoolidge.org. That's kevincoolidge.org for the Totally Ninja Raccoons. Did you know Night Dreams Talk Radio now has a great store? And now's the time to get that Night Dreamer, that cool Night Dreams tea, or Bigfoot mug. Night Dream Store has lots of awesome items to pick from. All for the Night Dreamer. For details, check out our show's website at www.nightdreamstalkradio.com.
remember how great paranormal talk radio was in the 80s and 90s? Night Dreams Talk Radio brings back to you talk radio like you remember. With your host, Gary Anderson. Broadcasting to you live from his secret compound deep in the great Northwest. Now... Here's Gary. And here I am. Boy, I feel like I need a golf club and swing a ball or something. I don't know. Well, Don, we are back. You know, that's the whole thing. You know, there's a, I, I don't care if it's ufology or the paranormal or ghost hunting. There's a lot of people out there, honestly, that write books that they're out to make a buck. They don't really want, they don't do enough research or they make stuff up, and it really does damage to ufology. And of course. have you noticed there is going to be a big division between ufologists? Uh, oh, absolutely. But it, it does go back. I can think, you know, even at the time, in the last years of even Dr. Heineck, you're talking the mid-'80s, where there was a division already uh, developing between the different organizations and the different uh, investigators. And in my impression at that time, it was mainly just for lack of work, lack of involvement, that these people, are, they, they sit around waiting for the phone to ring for that next case. And if, it, if they don't get it, well, then they start doing a little inflection and self-examination, and after they stop blaming themselves for solving the mystery, then they start pointing fingers at everybody else. I find that many of my colleagues, as they've gotten older, they become more cynical and they blame the phenomenon for lack of cooperation and as a result they become more skeptical and it's like well no the phenomenon hasn't failed you have you haven't come up with the solutions with the answers so you can hardly you know turn around and say well because i couldn't solve it it must not be there uh, you know you mentioned as far as all the books whether on this topic or, or anything else, that so often people have a preconceived theory and then they set out to you know, prove it. And no one can accuse uh, you know, me of that because I was a total skeptic on Roswell at the very beginning. We thought we'd make a, a single weekend jaunt down to the land of enchantment and prove that this was nothing more than a weather balloon device or something just as prosaic. And here we are all these years later, and to date, we've interviewed over 600 witnesses who were either directly or indirectly involved. No one has been more proactive in tracking down these, these people than, than we have. I, I know people that have written books about Roswell who never have been to New Mexico, never have talked to a single witness, and they take all our material and they just reinvent it. They, they spin it. They they manipulated in the, mm-hmm. you know their theory, and I, I, I'm sorry. There's hardly anything scientific about that. Uh, we have been the most proactive investigator. We've done five archaeological digs at the crash site. No one else has done that. Our book was made into the Roswell movie. No one else has had that blessing, you know, that wonderful experience. And we started the museum in Roswell. It's our museum. Nobody else can claim that. So, you know. I don't want to call these wannabes, but uh, I'm, I guess I should be flattered by the fact that they, they all think they can come up with a solution to the Roswell incident of 1947, but they all fall short. 
because they haven't walked in our shoes and they have never talked to any of the witnesses. No, and what they have done. You know, it's just like I had a guy, Don, years ago, about three years ago, bothered me for almost a year wanting to come on the show. He claimed he was a Bigfoot hunter Mm -hmm. and he had all this information. So finally, you know, I figured, okay, I'm, I'm going to talk to the guy. So I started, not on the air, I called him up and we started talking. I said, okay, uh, you're a Bigfoot. Yes, I'm a Bigfoot hunter. And I said, okay, where have you looked for Bigfoot? Well, I haven't. But I, you just told me on all these hundreds of emails, you're a Bigfoot hunter. Oh, no, 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 no. I go on YouTube. I do this. I listen to podcasts. <laughs> and, and I said, then you've Bigfoot. never... Never yeah. been out there, and you don't even know what a Bigfoot looks like. And you're right. sitting there, you know, writing a book about Bigfoot. It, it, you know, it just really realized, you know. And then there's another author has written over 30-some books on ufology, just cranks them out every month. And I look at those people, and it really disgusts me. It really does. It's, it's it's basically just regurgitating everyone else's research with their personal spin and again what is scientific about that none nothing you, no, you know no. i i had a, a major author on the show here oh i'm not gonna say it was a he or she back here two months ago maybe and they were saying you know when the et the alien they did the autopsy on it the nurse who did it you know, came up with all this information that she interviewed the nurse. and Or, I'm sorry, I said she, didn't I? I they interviewed the nurse. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, no nurse no, no. is going to do that. It's going to be doctors. It's not going to be one. It's going to be multiple doctors. Uh, and, 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 and the point uh, also that no one considers is the fact that it wasn't the standard, it wasn't the medical squad at Roswell at that time that was even involved, that there were outside doctors and nurses that came in to the facility. And everyone else was told it was off limits. Stay away, report back to your living quarters. And so that was the, the genius of all of this in that they brought in so many outside people that after the dust clears, there's no one at Roswell who really was involved. That can, you know, even when they were piecemealing, they were selecting men from this, one from that unit, one from that, you know. So it wasn't where, just imagine, Gary, the MP squad at that time was the 1395th. And it was one of the first squadrons at the Roswell Army Airfield we focused on. And we were really, you know, shocked to discover that they weren't used. That there were MP units that came in from White Sands and from Fort Worth and Fitzsimmons and uh, and and Kirtland up in Albuquerque, that type of thing. And for the ones that were used, again, they were piecemealed. But just imagine if you would have had the entire MP squadron involved, about a hundred men, and they've all participated. They've all seen. That's quite a rumble. That's quite a, a stirring of, you know, gossip and rumor that can potentially leak out. But if you're one lone individual, you'll be back in your barracks and, and everybody's looking at you like, well, we never heard anything about it. We didn't see anything. We weren't involved. It, it's, it shuts you down rather quickly. So that's how smart they were in all of this. 
and realizing that uh, just even where that old saying from World War II, least, uh, loose lips sinking ships. Oh, yeah. That they realized the first thing to do was clamp down, shut down the base, and bring in outside personnel that nobody would be able to track down, trace after the fact. Anybody was asked in Roswell what happened, they could honestly say, was, uh, we weren't there, wasn't involved. And that makes logical sense. Now, I'm going to backtrack a little bit for some people out there might not know what happened in 1947. But if I, and correct me, I can only do, tell you what I've read, research, you know, and all that stuff. There was major thunderstorms, lightning storms going on. Confirmed, yes. Okay. There also, radar was still fairly new at that time. Yes. And they had radar towers that were on daytime hours. They weren't 24-7. They also, from my research, and I have a massive electronic background, radar at that time was ultra-low frequency. Yes, so correct. Possibility, what I, I, and only, I, I can only assume this, if there was a crash, which I know there was, and if anything, I think it could have been both the lightning the thunderstorms, the weather, and the radar that could have caused something to malfunction in that craft. You, uh, you, you present the uh, precise, the exact scenario that we are starting to contemplate more and more. It, uh, from all the military sources involved, even there was a crash investigator from Boeing that was involved. There were engineers that were even brought out to the site based on the amount of wreckage and the amount of crates that they would have to construct. So they were assessing the payload what and what type of aircraft they would need. So they were bringing in experts to ascertain exactly how to, you know, not only uh, make the full recovery operation, the retrieval, you know, situation go as smoothly as, as possible, but also trying to assess what brought this thing down, what caused it the, the, the crash. And you are correct about the weather. We confirmed with the Stallion weather uh, uh, network at that time, the severe lightning storm that came off the southern Capitan Mountains between 11 1130 that late evening of uh, July 2nd. And that's the date that we've been focusing on. That's also the same day that Mr. and Mrs. Daniel Wilmot of Roswell saw a dome disc in broad daylight pass over the western part of Roswell and then head to the northwest in that general area. Now, one of the things that I always had a difficult time accepting was even radar, and as you mentioned, being low frequency at that time and being pretty primitive, pretty much in its infancy. Roswell was covered with radar, at the, or I should say New Mexico, had radar facilities all over. Oh, yeah. Uh, Facilities we didn't even know about, Gary. Um, the only radar in the world at that time that also tracked, you had radar that basically tracked incoming, but the only radar that tracked both incoming and departing aircraft was at White Sands Proving Grounds. And it was mainly because of all the rocket testing of the captured German V-2s post-World War II. So White Sands, it just uh, was a given that they would be awarded the most sophisticated state-of-the-art radar equipment at that time. But you also had radar 
at Roswell. You had radar at Cannon in uh, the in the Portales area of New Mexico. You had radar in Albuquerque at Kirtland. But what we weren't aware, Gary, is that there were two additional radar facilities in the central part of the state. Right. One was in Vaughn, New Mexico, which is 95 miles northwest of, of, of the city. And then just due north of the White Sands Proving Grounds, there was a radar facility. And we've been there, and the mounds of crushed asphalt are still there where this radar facility was located just west of Magdalena, west of Socorro, in conjunction with all the rocket launches, which from White Sands were launched north, northerly. Well, wouldn't you know that the radar lobes, as they would circle from their transmission or their reception, where did they all intersect? In Lincoln County. Right. And where did the crash take place? In Lincoln County, New Mexico. Now, I'm going to jump in here, too. Also, the radar, besides being a low-frequency, you know, uh, radar at that time, also was dirty. Yes. So it was not, you know, it was splattering the signals. Yeah. Very erratic. There was nothing constant about it. It uh, would spike and drop. It was totally inconsistent. It was dirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, we had the good, I had the good uh, fortune of interviewing a, uh, a former CIA, but he was an engineer and he specialized in radar. And as he brought this up and he suggested ways that we still need to investigate this. And uh, he, uh, he asked that I would get him information as to all the frequencies at that time. And because they were totally inconsistent with one another, mm-hmm. that as they would intersect, that they would create all types of interference and static. And as a result, he, according to what he said, Don, is a very strong possibility that even our own aircraft flying through that area at that time would have lost instrumentation, would have had all types of uh, instrument problems. Well, I'm going to jump one step. If our most sophisticated fighter right now flew through what that was i guarantee they would have all kinds of emission problems and malfunctions with their computer I, I, system. i'm sure that would be the case gary yeah. i would agree yeah so, so it, it it's it, it I, I love the fact that whenever you speak with and i'm gonna i'll throw you in the mix right now because you know i mean you know this very aspect of the case and we've been discussing this and we've been sharing information as we've learned, as we've discovered it on our own. But the point being that it keeps demonstrating that there's still much work to do on this, that the interest is still such that even though the witnesses have passed on, we've lost the race with the undertakers, so to speak. We're now starting to even lose their sons and daughters, their children. But nonetheless, now is where we take what we've accumulated, all that material, all that information provided us through all those years, and now we take it to the lab, we take it to the scientists, we take it to the crash investigators, and we see how it fits, we see how it works out. And as a result, it's still demonstrating that the witnesses were telling us exactly 
the truth. Exactly what they witnessed back at that time with very little deviation. And now it's up for us to prove it once and for all. We need to prove it. Now, I'm going to jump into something because I don't want to forget about it. Uh, And I'm going to make enemies right now. It has come out to light here in the last couple weeks. Bob Lazar, Area 51, was supposed to be going back and back engineering the engines or the uh, the mode of well transportation of ufos there's come out in the last couple weeks that he never did that his job at area 51 was checking people's badges and that the reason why i'm saying this because you know there is so much disinformation going on out there that right from the get-go to current that is really confusing people about this whole thing. And the reason why I'm saying this is really think about it. You know, we're not the only campground with people in it. If right. people out there think that there isn't life out there, well, you know what? They're naive. They're naive. We're not the only people walking in this campground. No, no, no. no. And my my personal position on Lazar for over 30 years has been that uh, he's nothing more than a useful idiot, and I don't mean any disrespect, but I, I, I liken him to a true whistleblower such as Edward Snowden, who, whether one believes he's either a hero or a traitor, but nonetheless, when you're the real thing, you have to flee the country because you paint a big target on your back. And In the case with Lazar, why was he able to freely talk? Why was he able to, you know, describe what most, within most quarters of ufology would be considered some of the most sensitive, most top secret information? And he's talking about the actual reality of the phenomenon. And yet he was able to, you know, publicly talk and describe things in detail. And no one ever stopped him. No. And And how many people? How many, you know, because Art Bell was a friend of mine. He knew some scientists. Same here, yes. That, honestly, that, you know, when they started talking, they they all of a sudden died in a car accident. Or, or, or Or they got shot in their garage. Or a whole bunch of things. Why would somebody be able to go for years and tell their same story over and over again? But here's the thing. The government likes it. You know, just like disclosure, you know, I'll it be honest their with dirty you. Work. It does their dirty work for them. That's so why I use the term useful idiot. Mm-hmm. In 48 years doing talk radio, or almost 48 years, is I've heard disclosure word mentioned so many times. <laughs> yes. And yes. I sit back and, and they haven't really disclosed anything that we already didn't know. Precisely. Precisely. And now... They're trying to put it back in the bottle, so to speak, and that they're only acknowledging the phenomenon back to 2004, yeah. as though it's only recently become a, a, a threat to national security, and no acknowledgement of anything for 50 years prior to that. And it's like, okay, if you, if they first of all, if they were to acknowledge that there was a phenomenon dating back to the 40s. Well, what one case would rise to the occasion and say, okay, if the phenomenon was real back in 1947, so what are you saying about Roswell? 
oh, no, 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 we're not acknowledging Roswell. It's still just a mogul weather balloon, a Russian spy balloon, <laughs> that type of thing. No, 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 no. You've acknowledged that the phenomenon existed back in the 40s. Okay, so how do you explain that? So, Gary, my, my position is that they have kept it as far as within uh, contemporary as far as a uh, situation in that the fallback can always remain either Russia or China or us. And the problem for them would be that anything back to the 40s and thereafter for the next 50 years, it could hardly have been Russia, and it certainly wasn't Chinese back to the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s. Well, yeah, I even heard, Don, it was a Japanese firebomb. Well, yeah, I mean, come was, on, people. Yeah, Japanese Fugel fire, which they were launching in desperation at the end of World War II, and they came in off the Pacific. One of them did make it as far east as uh, Michigan or even Ohio, and the only fatalities were a family camping in the uh, Seattle, Washington area, and they stumbled upon one of those bombs, those balloon bombs, and it detonated. And it killed the mother and, and four of her children. So we, we, we raised the question then, okay, if you want to claim that Roswell was a fugal balloon bomb, what, was it orbiting around the planet for two years before it finally came down you know, in New Mexico? And, uh, you know, the, the gentleman proposing that said, yeah, I guess you're right. It wouldn't fit. Oh, you're right. And, and and again, all this garbage, okay, you hear about all this stuff. It just makes me, you know, just want to go in the bathroom and vomit. Again, I don't think we're ever going to get true disclosure, even what no. disclosure we have. And would it, we trust them? Even what they would finally disclose, would we even have reason to believe it? Would we even trust them? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, because no. let's face it: what have they really said? They're it's not they're not saying it's off world. They're, you no, know, no, they're not no, going to say no. that. And where's all this other stuff they were supposed to release to the public? It hasn't been coming. Oh, that's because what's going on with the wall? Oh, the wall's over with. Now it's the Ukraine. See, it's always going to be something that's going to keep it always from coming a, out. Always a diversion. Always a distraction. And that's why I keep asking: Why now? Why now? Well, it's I not could, as though there's been a mass sighting. I mean, maybe when 1997, when the Phoenix Lights situation, that maybe that would have there would have been an uproar by the press, by the public. What are we dealing with here? Is it a threat? That type of thing. But nothing <laughs> preceded this. It's like uh, what you know caused them finally. Oh, what's on the agenda for tomorrow? Oh, UAPs, UFOs. Okay. Let's let's tackle that one. See where where that takes us. Um, well, but have you surmised this, Don? Think about what was going on around 1947. Okay, Doctor Wood has been on my show a couple of times. They were GE was testing these, you know, V two rockets from Germany around that time. That White frame. Sands in New Mexico, correct? Right. And what else were they doing? Detonating nuclear devices. In New Mexico, two hours west of Roswell. Yeah, wouldn't if you were kind of curious about all this radiation, you know, spiking out on this planet, I mean, wouldn't you want to investigate it? Well, even Project Blue Book, if you go by their own statistics, there were more UFO sightings in New Mexico at that time than anywhere else in the country. So I like to use, uh, I suggest that 
somebody else was very interested in our military potential at that time. And what better place than New Mexico? Oh, yeah. Now, this craft crashed. Do you believe that there was bodies recovered and that one of them lived for a period of time? Well, we always heard about bodies associated with the crash, but never at the debris field. The original site that was first reported by the ranch foreman, Brazel. And then we always heard that the bodies were at another location. And then when we even learned that Brazo himself had found a couple of bodies about two and a half miles east, southeast of that debris field, atop a bluff, which we've been to, and we've had first-hand witnesses take us to that site. And one of them even went so far as to say, this is where Mac, Mac Brazo, this is where Mac found something else. And then you tie that in with what Brazo told Frank Joyce from the, at the radio station about the, the, the horrible stench. That's the, it was just horrible. It was horrible. And, and, and Joyce finally suggesting, you mean you're talking about there were bodies? And then Joyce suggested, well, you know, they maybe launched a monkey in one of those rockets over at White Sands, to which Brazo fired back in the phone, they weren't any damn monkeys, they weren't human. And so you have Brazo himself with others involved with bodies at that location. And then, Gary, for years we had all the information from the sheriff's office and the Roswell Fire Department about a site much closer to Roswell, something within their jurisdiction, something that they managed to get to and be there prior to the military arriving. And always the talk about the bodies there, the remains of a craft, egg-shaped about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, and a survivor. So then we tied that in with the testimonies at the base hospital and the guards at the hangar and the survivor being described there, as well as the bodies being loaded into two separate flights. I mean, we can tell you who even piloted those planes. One was a C-47 piloted by Pappy uh, O.W. Henderson, and the other was piloted, it was a plane called the Straight Flush. It was a B-29 that went out a couple days later, and it was piloted by James Eubanks. And in both cases, they flew either via uh, Fort Worth, but the final destination was Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. And then we have witnesses there who talk about the bodies arriving and the survivor being witnessed there as well, Gary. Now, so, uh, yeah, but here's the question, too. Now, again, but, what I heard that the bodies had a real foul smell, a smell mm-hmm. but again, the bodies, what, laid out in the desert for about 24 hours? Even longer, yes. Yeah. So they people claimed it was a very bad stench to the, the, the bodies, but weren't the bodies put into, like, shipping uh, crates or something? They were, as well as uh, the description of lead-lined body bags and why lead-lined. Well, it was atomic base at that time, and uh, so uh, they were already anticipating uh, possible accidents and the possible need with fatalities that they would have to uh, seal off 
any uh, contaminated remains, radioactive, so they would use lead-lined body bags. And the other thing is there was a phone call that came in, and we, we, we also confirmed this. There was a, a Clarity's Dairy that uh, create, produced dry ice. And a phone call came in late the uh, Monday evening, July 7th. And a truckload of dry ice went in after midnight. And the skeptics suggested, well, they were curing concrete out on the, on the tarmac. Well, okay, fine, but why after midnight? Why an emergency delivery as though something extraordinary had taken place? And so we've had descriptions that the bodies were also packed in dry ice. They wouldn't have had cryogenics, certainly back at that time. They wouldn't have had embalming uh, techniques as we know them today. So the, the general uh, 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 preservative uh, attempts at that time would have been dry ice. And it makes sense. How about where this one author claimed that that these people seeing these bodies, you know, just propped against the wall in the hangar. What do you say about that one? Well, I, I think one of the things we, we looked into, the base commander at that time, Colonel William Blanchard, was a devout Catholic. And so we questioned for years would he have had the base chaplain? And at the time, he was a Methodist chaplain, and the one that came in shortly thereafter was Catholic, okay? But nonetheless, we questioned the possibility of last rites, that there would have been even some prayers said over the bodies, that type of thing, given the, uh, the base commander's background. And when we tracked down the family, of the chaplain at that time, they said that before he died, and they would ask him about Roswell, that he would all he would say was that there's much more to God's creation, much more to the universe than we will ever realize. So he was like he was expanding his mind as though he was just uh, talking beyond our planet, so to speak. And it was their perception that it was his way of acknowledging that Roswell did happen, but that was that was all he could say about it. So there would have been a, a level of dignity and respect that, from yeah, all but, indications, that uh, they just wouldn't have been propping these up as just, you know, a trophy with men posing in front of as though, well, look what we just begged, so to speak. That's what I'm saying. That it, That's what does damage to really what happened at Roswell. Now, uh, Don, we got to take a break. This is four minutes long. We'll be back. Go get a cup of tea, coffee, or whatever. We'll be back with Don. We're going to talk more about Roswell. I want to talk about the sheriff, the fire chief, the undertaker, and all that stuff where we can clear that up, too. We'll be back with Don right after this. Again, check out our website at www.nightdreamstockradio.com. If you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, shame on you. Please do that. Give it a thumbs up. Share it with your friends. We will be right back, so stay tuned. Echoes of Eden by Paul Wallace. What secrets of human potential lie hidden in the world's ancestral narratives? How are they connected with God, the Bible, and E.T. contact? From U.S. Senate briefings to ancient African ceremonies, from strange phenomena in Australia and Iraq to anomalies in Brazil and ancient Greece, the Eden series takes you around the world to discover why governments, military, and intelligence are interested in archaeology and initiation practices, and why you should be too. And what are the implications for you and me? 
to buy Echoes of Eden. The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden go to Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. Echoes of Eden is endorsed by George Nuri. Paul has done it again with his Eden series, delving deep into the power of the mind to do incredible things. Uncertain times, pandemics breaking out, a world on the brink of war, economic collapses, natural disasters, and crime around every corner. That's why six-time naked and afraid legend, extreme survivalist, adventurer, and army combat vet E.J. Snyder, the number one ranked survivalist in the world, wants you to be ready and has everything you need at www.ejsnyder.com. All of your needs to be ready for the bad days ahead. From survival training, gear, survival food, videos, and more. That's right. Subscribe with your email at 
www.ejsnyder.com for blogs, newsletters, and updates so that you are prepared and ready for whatever comes your way. E.J. Snyder always has your back. Survive on ejsnyder.com. Coming to you from some far point station, like a cosmic tumbleweed, both north and south of the Pleiades, here's your host, Gary Anderson. And we're back talking with Don about Roswell. Now, let's backtrack. Who is the one that first well seen the bodies? Well, I would, as I just described uh, before the break, uh, the rancher, Mac Brazel. So before he came into Roswell, he the crash takes place late evening of July 2nd. And the very next morning, July 3rd, he and a neighbor boy by the name of Timothy D. Proctor, seven years old, both on horseback, they discovered a debris field that covered about nine-tenths of a mile, all suggesting it was a mid-air explosion. Again, whether it was struck by lightning or an internal malfunction caused by you know, a radar the jamming, uh, uh, you know, as far as uh, malfunction of their guidance systems. Again, we can only speculate. But within a couple of days, and typically circling birds, suggesting after a bad storm, a, a downed cow or sheep. So they investigate. And it's where they found, and I can name, aside from Brazo, his son Vernon, and Proctor, the young boy. There was a son of a hired hand by the name of Sidney, Jack Wright. And there was a young girl, about the same age, by the name of Eddington. And they were with Brazo, thinking it was just going to be the remains of uh, one of the livestock. And here it was as someone described where Mac found something else. So it would have been Brazo. Now, we remember, Gary, when Brazo would be escorted after... Here's the, also the crucial thing that nobody ever considers. That it's after the balloon explanation sticks. Public accepts it, breathes a sigh of relief, end of story. And yet the military, they abduct Brazo... They confiscate a wire recording that was done with the uh, head of the radio station, KGFL, that was Walt Whitmore Sr., at his home the, the evening before, and where another reporter by the name of Judd Roberts from the radio station told us that Brazel freely talked about the bodies at this other location. So the next morning, they confiscate the wire recording, they abduct Brazel, they kidnap him, they hold on to him for the next five days. Now, they don't afford him due process. They don't even allow him to call his wife, his boss, let anyone know where he is. They deprive him of food, water, they keep him up for all hours of the night, asking him the same questions over and over again. Torture. Well, and then Brazza would talk later about the indignity, that how dare they, how could they do that? And they did a full body cavity search. Now, does anyone, any of your listeners, 
<laughs> would any one of them like to propose they were looking for pieces of a weather balloon? Up your anus. Now this, th- now, this is a civilian. The military has absolutely zero authority over civilians unless martial law be declared. And martial law, <laughs> you know, in the guise of a weather balloon recovery would have never fit. So they try to do this all rather, you know, clandestinely. But nonetheless, they still did what they had to do, and they resorted to the most extreme measures in containing this and covering this up. And that's why, Gary, you're absolutely correct. I mean, granted, all those officers, all those people are now long gone. But we are still talking about a Pentagon. We're still talking about a government that has maintained that level of silence that suppression of the truth for now 75 years, and we're now going to believe them? After 75 years, the very arbiters of that cover-up, and now they've had a, you know, pangs of guilt that they now are going to testify you know, before the Senate Intel Committee, and, well, we're going to, we're going to tell you everything we know, but oh. only back to 2004. Oh, come and on. So it's not much. Okay, even if they want that, you, you realize if you lie to the public... I don't care if it's from 2004 or from 1947, and you continue to lie year after year under investigation. And, you know, they have had Senate and Congress investigating UFOs from the late 40s or, you know, so come on. You think they are going to come clean? Because if they come clean on that, then everybody's the population is going to wonder, Okay, well, you came clean about the UFO thing. Well, how about all this other stuff? Yeah, how about JFK? Yeah. How about RFK? How about Martin? I mean, on and on and on. Bay of, you know, Bay of Pigs, even Mr. Christ, on, on and on and on. Uh, it's just, and they realize that. They know that. They know they would be held. The culpability factor alone, the fact that they threaten children, they threaten to kill children over this incident. They are never going to concede that. And that's why for all these people that even are... Remain convinced we're going to get a, even a small D, small disclosure. Again, not going to believe it. No. Not going to believe it because it's going to be to their benefit, their advantage. It certainly will not be for ours. And you're right. Could you, though, going back 1947, right? You have people knocking on your door and telling you, you know, you don't know nothing about this. If you say anything about this, Something bad can happen to you. You know, these people, like we talked at the beginning of the show, put the military, especially the Army Air Force, uh, right, on a pedestal. And right. now they're coming to people's houses and threatening them with their lives and everything else, their job, their security. It, 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 it destroys your perception of the world because you've gone from a high of practically worshiping these people to the point that they're now threatening to kill your children. In the guise of a weather balloon, which is splashed all over the newspapers and the radio stations at that time, and it's just try to you know, walk in their shoes for a moment and then look at how their world was changed overnight. It's not enough to just accept the fact that we are not alone, that we are 
being visited by an intelligence off the planet, but then the very people that you need to trust, you need to believe in the most to provide the answers, to tell you, is this a threat? Is this something that we need to fear? Do we need to take up arms and is this going to be the next war? That type of thing. And then it's the very people that you place your highest regard and they're the ones that are threatening you. Not the, the, the invaders, not the aliens, but our own government, our own people that are sworn to protect us. And so that's another thing that the skeptics never consider, that, well, they were just lying to jump on this bandwagon. Yeah, they were, yeah, yeah, they're making that up to put, you know, to make themselves targets of the government. Yeah. Now, I got to jump in here. On chat, Nancy on chat, who's a night dreamer, you know, it said maybe get, you know, go back and, and, Go to where the graves... There is not going to be no graves of the ETs. No, no. No. And if they're still in existence, they're in a tube filled with alcohol or frozen. Cryogenics, cryogenically preserved, and we even know we have three first-hand witnesses, and we have every reason to believe that everything was cleared out of Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio, many years ago. And even Area 51 did not exist back in 47. It did not even, be, you know originate until 1955 so eight years later uh, i'm going to jump in here too you mentioned area 51 now right. i know from reliable sources okay and one of them just you know john lear who just passed away yes yes a- and he was on our show here you know a couple of weeks before he passed away big loss oh that recent yes very yeah. good and you know the, here's the thing there's no underground base in area 51 but none of them admit that. No. But, you know, people are so accustomed, you know, telling, oh, there's an underground base at Area 51. It has tunnels, you know, that, you know, goes out to the Pacific Ocean and all. There's Here's the problem. There's so much disinformation out there. The government loves it. Oh, yes, absolutely. It becomes the perfect, you know, uh, smokescreen. And they love that... Um, fact that area 51 served that purpose for many decades that all the illusions of ufo and alien reverse engineered technology coming out of area 51 and they love the fact that the russians just ate it up that the soviet union during the cold war even discounted much of that because they they realized it was such propaganda it was just such smoke and mirrors and, and you're so right the, the military they're, they're the masters of that and you're right. Boy, I just looked at the time. We only got a few minutes left. What happened? Now, again, I've heard, maybe you can correct me. I've heard different stories about what happened to the sheriff. I heard that he got paid a visit. I heard that he got roughed up. But mm-hmm. then other people told me, no, he just got yelled at and threatened. Well, uh, let's go Let's go right to the family. Let's go to it. I want to know on this one. And we've interviewed through the years his two daughters elizabeth talk as well as phyllis mcguire and even elizabeth's uh, husband the late jay talk we talked to quite a few of the grandchildren through the years uh, barbara duggar who the sheriff's wife inez wilcox lived with in the last uh, 10 years of her life and confessed to her how they had threatened they were going to they would kill the entire family, if the sheriff didn't cooperate. Now, where did Sheriff Wilcox, how did he die? 
he died just uh, about 20, not even 20 years after the incident. And he died in a mental asylum. He died in a mental institution. Now, he never ran for re-election. He never ran for sheriff again after the incident. His daughter Phyllis described that the incident destroyed him. Her word, destroyed him. Now, when the rancher first came into Roswell, he brought in two boxes. One box was taken back to the base, was taken out to the base, I should say, by Major Marcel, which he displayed then to the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, before they were dispatched to go investigate the site. The other box was kept by the sheriff. When we did a final tour of the courthouse with the two daughters, their living quarters, where their father's office was, the front lobby, and we asked the question, now where did your father keep that box? And they took us directly to the closet, right on the floor, just across from his desk. And they both described how they were home when they heard the loud roar of vehicles surrounding the building, surrounding the courthouse. And armed guards, MPs, came in through the kitchen, they came in through the front lobby, they came in through the jail section, all demanding to know where the sheriff was. And for the two daughters, the living quarters were upstairs, and there was a hallway so they could look down into the lobby and then right into their father's office. For the two of them to describe that they manhandled their father, they grabbed him, they turned, twisted his arm up behind his back and pushed his face up against the wall, demanding to know where the box of stuff was, as they called it. And he turned it over to them. Well, the granddaughter, Barbara Duggar, said that Inez, the sheriff's wife, described that a day later, the sheriff was ordered to come out to the base. Well, he wanted a witness, so he took one of the deputies. According to the granddaughter, Barbara Duggar, Inez described to her that when he returned, he looked, he, was, he looked as though he had seen a ghost. His tie was twisted sideways. His hat looked like it had been twisted, and he looked pretty besheveled, as though, and she said, it looked like he had been roughed up all over again. Mm-hmm. Now, that's from the family. Now, we can, again, speculate as to what we think happened. But, again, we always go to the, the, the source. And, and certainly if the sheriff, if Wilcox would have lived to be an old man, we would have made every effort to get him to talk as well. Now, how about the fire chief? Well, it wasn't the fire chief per se. It was a crew chief by the name crew of chief. Dan Dwyer. Now, Dwyer, back in 1947... The firehouse adjoined the sheriff's building, the courthouse, the sheriff's office. And it was a party line. The same phone line went into both buildings. So if a report came to the sheriff, the fire department, they knew, and vice versa. Whatever happened, they were right on it. So they were aware of the situation. And they were aware of the situation just north of town with the craft and the bodies. So Dan Dwyer got into their one of their personal cars. It wasn't where the fire department went out there, but it was Dan Dwyer and another fireman uh, by the name of uh, Ed, Ed Reeves. 
And they drive, they drove out about 35 miles north of town and based on the information, and then they cut west off of 285, the highway, and they made their way to the specific ranch in question. It was a private ranch at that time, the Don Martin Ranch. And they came upon the site. And then Dwyer also witnessed the survivor, which he also described before he died. And you know the story, Gary, how uh, his daughter, Frankie, who had been to a dentist, she had her tonsils removed just a few days before, and she thought she'd stop by the firehouse to say hello to her dad. And who should be there in place of her dad, who happened to be north of town at the crash site, the impact site, at that very moment, but it was a state police officer by the name of Robert Scroggins, who worked Lincoln County. And he brought with him a piece from Brazil, from the debris field, about the size of a handkerchief. And he was passing through Roswell on his way to his home east of Roswell in the town of Hobbs. So he stopped, he wanted to show his friends, his buddies, this piece that they were all allowed, they all had a chance to handle, including Frankie, including Dan Dwyer's daughter, Frankie. And she described to it to us that no matter how you creased it or folded it or crumbled it into your, your hands into a ball, you placed it down. And as she described it, it flowed like quicksilver. It flowed like water. It just smoothed right out. So it was a piece of one of the, that memory material that so many of the witnesses described. Well, that evening, Frankie's home, and there's a knock at the door. Her dad is still at the firehouse. And her mother is approached by a first lieutenant, an officer, by the name of uh, Arthur Philbin. He's a former state, New York State police officer, about six foot four, 250 pounds, big booming voice, demanding to know where Frankie was. He had three non-commissioned officers with him, according to Frankie, and then they came to her bedroom where she was hiding. And with the baton in his hand and how he kept, you know, hitting the baton into his open hand over and over again. And if you ever say another word about what you saw or what you heard, we will take you out in the desert and you will never be found again. So yeah, that's that was a good threat, isn't it? Directly to the children, directly to the children. It was something that Frankie lived with the rest of her life. She never got over it. She would often become very emotional as she would tell that story. Could you imagine emotionally the baggage those children carried all the way to the day they passed? The damage emotionally that what happened caused them. Frankie's been gone now four years. And it was just a couple years before that. I get a phone call on a Sunday afternoon from Frankie. She goes, Don, I think I just did something very stupid. A gentleman just called up, said he was passing through the area on his way back to Arizona. And he'd like to stop by and just meet me. And I don't know what I should do. And I said, well, Frankie, you could just leave, not be there. You could call the police and at least have them near the area should you need them in a hurry, or let's see who it is. Well, to my surprise, she did meet with the gentleman, came to the door, and he introduced himself, and he turned out to be the son of that Arthur Philbin, the one who originally threatened him. 
threaten her. And Philbin had, his father had passed away back around 1970. And he was a religious man. He was a member of the Holy Name Society at church on Sunday mornings, that type of thing. And he was a big, booming man whose voice, you know, commanded respect in entering the room. And she said, I, and he, he said to her, I hope you understand my father was doing as he was ordered. He was only doing what he was ordered, that it was nothing personal. And then he reached from behind his back and he said, if my dad were still alive, he'd want you to have these. And he pulled out a bouquet of flowers and handed it to Frankie. And they both cried as they held one another. And it was like it was so symbolic. It was the military, you know, saying they were sorry to the civilians for what they did back in 1947. So wonderful story. And it was closure, especially for Frankie at that time. And she needed that, too. Yes, she did. Our time is up. How can people find your books? Where can they get your books, the name of your books? Let's get this out for people if they want more information about Roswell. Thank you, Gary. And and, and the new book is the 75th edition of Witness to Roswell. Uh, New chapters, new witnesses, new photographs, the whole thing. Available at Barnes & Noble, other fine bookstores, and certainly at Amazon. So it's also available at the uh, museum in Roswell. And I'm on Facebook under Donald Raymond Schmidt. Our website is presently being rebuilt, so uh, we're we're working on that. But uh, we still have all the other books that are available also at Amazon. So uh, we are still on the case, still very proactive, and uh, we still... We'll make every effort to come up with a final resolution as to what did indeed crash back in 1947. And your gut feeling was it off world? Yes, yes. I I I, I now state that I'm 99.9 percent convinced. When I'm asked, "Do you believe, Don?" I say, "No, I don't believe," but I am 99 percent convinced. Well, Don, it's been a real pleasure. We need to get you back on, not 13 months from now, but maybe a few months out. And we can, you know, anything new you turn up, you can share that. And again, I don't think we're going to get disclosure. What a lot of people think we're going to get is it's not going to happen. Unless they allow whistleblowers to testify with immunity, state on the record their personal experiences, and finally, you know, go all the way back to 1947 because they could prove it overnight. Just with a single piece of that memory material, right, Gary? They oh, yeah. could just display that, and that's all it would take. Or a body. Sure. Don, again, thank you so much. And you have my pleasure. A, I enjoyed have, it very much, Gary. We'll okay, do it again friend. soon. You take care. You too. Uh-huh. Good night. Well, tomorrow we got a great show. We got two guests tomorrow. We're going to talk about strange things in the paranormal. And our second guest, uh, we're going to be talking about what the world would be like after world war three so it's going to be a great show so make sure you tune in again tell your friends subscribe to our youtube channel if you haven't done it again you know become a night dreamer just go to night dreams talk radio at uh, well at uh, www.nightdreamstalkradio.com i 
had a brain fart there for a second. Also, if you go to our website, it's been totally updated with, dated with a lot of videos, and you'll see who our guest is all the way up to next week. So again, just go to nightdreamstalkradio.com. There's a little envelope there. It says Fast Blast to Gary. And if you like to be a guest on the show, if you have something the paranormal you want to share, well, contact us, and I'll have my producer get a hold of you. Well, till tomorrow, when we're talking about the paranormal, and what it would be like after World War III. Everybody have a good one. We'll catch you on the other side.